Well, Matthew has made it abundantly clear that Jesus on earth had the power of God in heaven. He had power over disease, power over nature, power over evil, power over sin, and power over death itself. But even like God in heaven, Jesus' power on earth was limited. You know, the skeptics like to ask that if God is all-powerful, can he make a rock so big that he can't pick it up? They think they've created quite a conundrum with that. The simple answer is yes. If God chooses to limit himself, he can. And he has. You know, God chose to limit himself when he gave us free will. It's not his will that any perish, but that all come to repentance. But he won't force his will on us to accept the gift of grace. He won't drag us kicking and screaming into heaven against our will. Similarly, Jesus could have saved all of mankind by himself if he had chosen to do so. And in a sense, he did. He died to make the forgiveness of sin available to everyone. But in becoming a man, he did limit himself in some things. He didn't turn stones into bread when he was hungry. He didn't call 10,000 angels to rescue him from the cross. And he chose to put human limits on himself in many aspects of his ministry. In fact, he chose to share his ministry with us. And as we come to the close of Chapter 9, Matthew makes it clear that Jesus had come to a point in his ministry where he needed help. Let's continue our study. Matthew 9, 35 through 36. And Jesus was going about in all the cities and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. And seeing the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Matthew summarizes Jesus' ministry at this point by saying that he was going about all the cities and all the villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, that's quite a ministry. Quite a ministry. You know, how could one man cover all the cities and all the villages and teach in all the synagogues and heal all the sick? Obviously, one man couldn't do it. Even the Son of God couldn't be everywhere and do everything. Now, he did so before coming to earth and is doing so now from the heavenly realms. But while here on earth, inhabiting the body of a man, Jesus was limited just as we are. He could not be everywhere. And note that he 
didn't want to limit his ministry to just one segment of the population. He didn't want to just focus on the population centers like strategic planners might suggest today. He went to all the cities and all the villages. The cities were the the walled urban centers. The villages were the rural communities. He didn't want to rule out one segment of the population just because of where they lived. He wanted to teach and to preach to everyone, to all. And that's what he was doing, teaching in the synagogues, going to the places of religious education and teaching, reading and interpreting and applying the Scriptures. Sometimes his teaching went well, it was well received. Other times, like in Nazareth, his hometown, he was literally run out of town because his teaching was so unexpected and so radical. He taught in other locations as well, often teaching by the seashore or on a hillside. On those occasions, he generally didn't teach from the scriptures, but used stories and nature to illustrate spiritual truths. In every respect, Jesus was the master teacher. But he was more than that. He was also a preacher. He proclaimed the gospel. He was a herald delivering good news that the kingdom of God was at hand. In fact, he had come to earth to establish his kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that would encompass all peoples and know no boundaries. And he declared that powerfully to everyone. He was also a healer. The Messianic kingdom had been prophesied as the time when the blind would see The deaf would hear, the lame would leap, and the dumb would talk. Jesus healed. And he confirmed the truthfulness and authority of his message by his healing. He healed every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Many times he did that just to confirm the truth of the message he was proclaiming. Sometimes he just healed because he cared about people. He was compassionate, seeing the multitudes. He was moved with compassion. This is a good word. A good word. It's the strongest of words used to express emotion for someone and their needs. It literally means to feel something inside you, in your internal organs, what used to be called your bowels of mercy. Well, Jesus was moved emotionally when he saw the multitudes because he saw them as sheep without a shepherd, distressed and downcast. And even those words don't communicate the depth of what he felt. The word translated distressed actually means flayed, ripped, mangled, as a sheep would be after a wolf attack. And downcast means thrown down, prostrate, on the ground, and unable to get up at the very point of death. Jesus saw man's need as desperate. He knew the work of salvation he would have to do alone. Only he could go to the cross. But the work of ministering to spiritual emotional, and physical needs could also be done by others who would be willing to join him 
in shepherding the sheep. And so he prayed for help. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Now, just who is included among the disciples at this point, we aren't sure. We know the twelve were among them, but others may have also been considered disciples as well. You know, a disciple is simply a learner. And any who were following Jesus and learning from him were disciples. And to them all, he said, the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few. Now, when he spoke of the harvest, he was talking about the multitude. Not only were they like sheep in need of a shepherd, they were like fields of grain ready for harvest. They were ripe. They were ready. And if they weren't gathered into the kingdom soon, they would be lost. You know, it's time for harvest harvest must begin. Corn may be a little forgiving, but it's my understanding that when beans are ready, you've got to move. If you wait too long, they pop open and you lose them. The Hunleys don't take any chance. They don't dilly-dally when it's time for harvest. Everything is made ready to roll, and when the time comes, they head for the fields. Paul's dad drives the combine, his brother runs the grain cart. Paul hauls the grain to the bins, and Nikki and Melissa keep everyone fed. <laughs> now, sometimes they do need a second truck to get the grain to the elevator, but they can usually do everything themselves. And it amazes me how quickly they can get all the grain in. But if they found that they couldn't get it all in before winter, I'm sure they'd be looking for help. No farmer would do it all himself if the crops were in danger of being lost. And Jesus didn't want that to happen with the multitudes. They were ready. The harvest was plentiful, but the workers were few. So he said, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Pray for workers. Pray for God to send us workers. Now, I find it a little interesting that Jesus didn't simply go off by himself and pray for workers. He asked the disciples to pray for workers. Surely God would have heard his prayer as readily as he would have heard the prayers of the disciples. And as I've said before, we don't have to gang up on God to get him to do something. We don't share prayer needs with others so they can help us convince God to give us what we want. We ask others to pray with us because we're family. Because it's comforting to know our brothers and sisters care about us enough to beseech the Father on our behalf. Because those who are praying with us can often help us discern the Lord's will concerning that for which we're praying and 
because God may touch the heart of someone praying for us and actually use them to become the answer to our prayer. And that's what happened here. Jesus asked the disciples to pray for workers, and some of those disciples became the workers for whom they were praying. From the disciples came the apostles. Matthew 10. And having summoned the twelve disciples, he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Now, the names of the twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples, 12 disciples who had apparently been brought into a closer relationship with Jesus than the rest of the disciples. He called in those 12 selected disciples and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. Not to be sorcerers or witches who call upon these powers, but authority to cast them out as Jesus did. He also gave them power over every kind of disease and every kind of sickness, the same power he exercised. Power that would not only enable them to meet needs as he did, but would also confirm the message they would be delivering, for they too would be teaching and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. These disciples would be the workers for whom they had been praying. They would be the shepherds. They would be the apostles. Now, an apostle is one who is sent out with the authority of the sender. They are official representatives of someone else. And Matthew here introduces us to the twelve who would become Jesus' apostles. And do notice the shift in referring to them as his twelve disciples in verse 1 to the twelve apostles in verse 2. These are the apostles Jesus selected and empowered to be his official representatives on earth. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Now, there are actually four lists of the apostles in the New Testament. One in Matthew, one in Mark, one in Luke, and one in Acts. We don't find one in the Gospel of John. And the lists are not all identical. They all have 12 names, except for Acts, of course, because Judas is gone by then. And they all appear to be divided into three groups of four each. Simon Peter heads every list, as well as the first group. Philip, the second, and James, the son of Alphaeus, the third group. 
Four names are then found within each group, but other than the first name in each group, the order is not always the same. And the name Thaddeus appears in Matthew and Mark, while a name Judas, son or brother of James, appears in Luke and Acts. So there's a little confusion here. Now, we're very familiar with some of these men, and we know virtually nothing about others. So let's take just a few moments and review some of what we do know and what tradition says about these apostles. Simon Peter, who Matthew introduces as the first, wasn't the first to become a disciple, but he quickly gained prominence and was considered number one among the apostles. Um, He and his brother Andrew, they were fishermen from Bethsaida. Peter's given name was Simon or Simeon, but Jesus called him Cephas in Aramaic or Petros in Greek, which means rock or rocky, kind of like that. He was bold and impetuous, prone to err, but very quick to repent. Tradition tells us that after 90 years of faithful service, he was crucified upside down at his request because he didn't deem himself worthy to be crucified like Christ. Andrew is best known for leading his brother Simon Peter to the Lord. He was also the one who brought the boy with five loaves and two fish to Jesus. Apparently, he was a man of rare insight and was an effective personal worker. Tradition says he was also crucified. And that as he hung on the cross for two days, he continued teaching. James and John are mentioned next. They were also brothers and fishermen. Sons of Zebedee. Jesus called them the Sons of Thunder. I love that name. In fact, I was part of a motorcycle group one time called the Sons of Thunder. Oh, well. Very short time. But he called them the Sons of Thunder, probably reflecting their temperament. A temperament that led them to suggest that Jesus called down fire from heaven on the Samaritans when they refused to show him hospitality. Sons of thunder. Well, James' ministry was cut short, literally, being the first to die a martyr's death. His death, the only apostle's death recorded in scriptures, was recorded in Acts 12, where it says Herod the king had put him to death with a sword. And tradition tells us he was beheaded. John went on to become the last of the apostles, surviving being put into a cauldron of boiling oil, according to tradition, and exile on the Isle of Patmos. He's thought to be the only apostle to die a natural death and became in his old age the apostle of love. Stories are told of him being carried in to worship. Just saying, little children love one another. What a neat picture of a great old man. I like that. Well, Philip heads the second list of four. And he, like Peter and Andrew, was from Bethsaida. 
and had probably also been a disciple of John the Baptist. When he became convinced of Jesus' identity, the first thing he did was look up his friend Nathaniel and say, We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. We have found the Messiah. Tradition says he ministered in the Roman province of Asia and was hanged against a pillar in Phrygia. Bartholomew is mentioned in all four lists, but nowhere else. His full name may have been Nathaniel Bartholomew, because Bartholomew actually means son of Ptolemy. If he is Nathaniel, he came from Cana, and Jesus said upon meeting him that he was a man without guile. Tradition says he wrote a gospel and preached in India. It also says he was skinned alive. Thomas who's called Didymus, or the twin, is best known as Doubting Thomas. He was the apostle who refused to believe Jesus had risen until he saw the crucifixion wounds himself. Tradition says he also wrote a gospel and went to India, and he was impaled on a stake. Matthew, or Levi, we know as the tax gatherer. His name, Matthew, actually means gift of God. I like to think of him more as that than a tax gatherer. But his accuracy in keeping records, no doubt, fitted him for note-taking and the writing of his gospel. We're told he suffered martyrdom by the sword in Ethiopia. James, the son of Alphaeus, may have been Matthew's brother because Mark refers to Matthew as Levi, the son of Alphaeus. If they were sons of the same Alphaeus, they were brothers. But some suggest he was actually the James the Less that's mentioned in Mark 15. If that's true, he was a brother of Joseph and son of one of the Marys who viewed Jesus on the cross from a distance. But of him, we know virtually nothing. The same is true of Thaddeus, which may not actually be his name. Thaddeus comes from a root meaning the beloved. His name may have actually been Judas. To keep him from being confused with Judas Iscariot, Matthew and Mark apparently refer to him as Thaddeus, the beloved. Luke refers to him as Judas the son or brother of James, and John calls him Judas, not Iscariot. Again, of him, we know nothing. All we know about Simon the Zealot is that he was a zealot or a Canaanian. They were political revolutionaries who carried daggers and weren't afraid to use them. Obviously, it's a testimony to Jesus' power to bring together men of radically differing political views. But both Matthew, a tax gatherer who sold out to the Romans, and Simon, a radical Jewish nationalist who hated the Romans, would both be chosen as apostles. The last apostle to be mentioned is Judas Iscariot, or as my spell checker once suggested, Escargo. <laughs> Merlin doesn't remember it, but 
At that time, she thought that was most appropriate since Judas was a slime ball. <laughs> I had to get that in. Well, he was the one to whom Jesus entrusted the treasury and the one who sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver and then hanged himself. These are the 12 apostles. They were a mixed bag, but with the one exception, had one very important thing in common. A love for and a commitment to Jesus Christ. They were men who answered their own prayer for workers in the kingdom. Men who responded to the need and the prayer to become apostles. While we no longer have the opportunity to become apostles in the official sense of the word, there is obviously still a need for workers in the kingdom. And I believe Jesus would still admonish us to beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Over the years, we've prayed for workers. And God has answered our prayer in part by sending out numerous Timothys from our church. And we must continue praying for workers who will go out from Chatham Christian Church. We also need to pray for God to send workers who will labor in our little part of the kingdom who will teach and preach and meet needs and help shepherd the flock of God in our community. And quite frankly, you can become an answer to that prayer by simply deciding to follow Jesus. Let's follow him together. decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me the cross before me.